it's not kind of this gasp, oh no, I've been caught. It's, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And then they partner to resolve those issues. We've been joined by some tremendous new members at Instac London in the last couple of months, and you've got some really fascinating guests to look forward to over the next few weeks. Now, one of the things that seems to stand out from a lot of the companies we talk to is that what they're offering is actually relatively simple to understand. Now, for sure, getting the product market fit right is tough. Building what is these days usually quite complicated technology is hard. Persuading insurers to listen is difficult. And all of that whilst scaling a company to deliver it are all really difficult and lots of opportunity to fail. So one of the things I like about Flyreel is that the concept itself is so clear, you might even wonder why you didn't think of it yourself. Well, welcome back if you are a regular listener or even if you are an irregular listener. And if this is the first time you've discovered us, well, hang in there. I think you're going to like this one. Now, Cole Williams is going to be talking about how he at Flyreel and his team have designed a product that's helping insurers and their clients identify high-risk objects in their policyholders' home. But they're doing it in a way that's benefit of both the customer and the insurer. We're going to be finding out more about machine learning and computer vision and how they tackle some of the really hard problems. And then we go on to explore what is next for the company and just what you can do once you've gathered all of that data. Definitely worth hanging there to the end. Some great tips on how to build a business from coal. I'm Matthew Grant, partner at Instec London, where we are bringing you the intelligence and the insights on the things that really matter. Another slightly longer episode today. So much great content in there that we couldn't really leave anything out. Cole, I've been really looking forward to this interview. What you're doing, I think, is is fascinating, and I'm really intrigued to hear about how you're able to do some of the things you're doing with video and and risk identification. But just before we kick off, perhaps if I can just give you a bit of introduction. So you're the co-founder and CEO of Flyreel. Uh, interesting, you've got a background in uh, in software engineering, so I'm going to uh, adopt you as an engineer because uh, <laughs> more engineers on these. Uh, you're based in Denver. Uh, you founded Flyreel back in 2016. According to Crunchbase, uh, you've received $80 million of funding, and I know you had a round of $10 million back in last November, so welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. I think what's really tricky about what you've done is you've created this technology which allows homeowners to carry out the self-inspection of their homes just with their smartphone. And it seems like they're now providing that to underwriters as part of their underwriting process. So we'll hear right. a bit more about it. But for you personally, what was it that took you out of software engineering uh, and into the strange world of insurance? <laughs> well, I was joking that growing up, I always wanted to be in underwriting technology. But I, my background was in product development and software engineering. And where I get a lot of my energy is taking the best of today's technology and, and rethinking the way we do things today, uh, uh, see if we can do things better using basically the latest and greatest. And in my journey with Flyreel, I had a couple ideas, and the initial ones weren't all that great. It was fun to build the product, but it didn't amount to a great business. And in that process, we kind of experimented and created some really neat technology around artificial intelligence, machine learning, computer vision. And through some good mentorship and some of our early investors, we were tipped off in terms of there being an opportunity. 
in insurance. And we explored that. And that's when the doors really opened. We saw an opportunity to do what we love, which is inventing and creating meaningful technology that generates value, uh, but in a market where it could have a really considerable impact. Do you already have the idea for what you're now offering with the image recognition and the artificial intelligence and, and therefore you're looking for a place to apply to that? Or did you just see an opportunity in insurance and then you went out to find what the best technology was to solve some of the problems? No, we had developed an early proof of concept where using the smartphone, you could pan across a room and it would create a list of items in that room automatically using computer vision. And at that time, there was uh, a lot of the growth happening in the aerial and geospatial analysis of roofs at scale with kind of early adoption and use and deployment of computer vision. And we kind of looked at this with some of our investors and mentors and said, well, if they're able to scalably look at the exteriors of the homes, what can insurance carriers do to see the interiors? And that was overlapping at that time where we had developed that proof of concept. And that was really our aha moment. And I want to come back to that whole photo recognition uh, and just how that works. But probably before we get into that, it'd be useful just to make sure we talk a bit about what the use case is. So can you just talk through how an insurance company, and I assume this is a, the underwriters, or maybe it's not, but somebody else supporting the underwriters is working with your technology and their prospective clients as part of that underwriting process. Today, insurance carriers will use a variety of, I would call them inspection tools. So they can use geospatial and aerial to try to get a snapshot of the home, the exterior and the roof to then kind of funnel some of the underlying assumptions about price and risk. And you have in-person inspections that are potentially drive-by inspections. Someone drives by, gets a couple photos. The photos are current. Um, they get uh, decent visibility into the exterior of the property. And then even going beyond that, you have the in-person inspection. And the in-person inspection is the most expensive, but it's also the most detailed. It does require collaboration often with the policyholder, especially if someone has to go inside. And because of the coordination, because of the economics behind some of those methods, carriers have kind of had to do a bit of a, an exchange of um, basically sacrificing data and visibility into property because the economics don't necessarily enable them to scalably view those properties the way that they wish they could. And that has an impact in terms of risk selection and segmentation and pricing. Uh, you are effectively riding on top of assumptions, uh, good, educated guesses, but there's now the ability to scalably know and acquire ground truth through remote capture technology and self-inspection. And so we work with underwriters in that regard to allow them to get ground-level truth on properties at scale to make for more informed underwriting decisions and the outcome of that has been better risk selection, better pricing, and happier customers. So from a practical point of view, just thinking this through, so typically most people, certainly in the U.S., we buy in their insurance through an agent or we turn them a broker. And then at some point, the underwriter makes a decision about the risk. They've got some flexibility about rating, but again, not as much flexibility in the U.S. So where does Flyreel enter into that sort of workflow at the point that people actually want to engage with the homeowner? It's usually right after that quote, 
in the underwriting window. So there's roughly a month or two there where changes can be made to pricing and the policy as a whole before it's formally bound. And so usually a quote is issued to the customer and then an inspection or a self-inspection is ordered. And the policyholder receives an email or a text to just walk around their house and scan it. And uh, oftentimes it's just confirming things, but oftentimes it's identifying things that the carrier didn't know about and the policyholder wish they did so that they can ensure that the stuff they care about most is adequately covered. So that's uh, the primary use case. The uh, close second is renewal. So uh, homes that have been on the book for a while haven't been seen or looked at ever or uh, at least recently. And sending out self-inspection links to your existing customers just to check as a quick sanity check that everything is adequately covered and priced and that that customer has the insurance that they think they do uh, or they hope they do. And so we're predominantly used in underwriting for new policies in that window and then also renewals. So everyone gets it and then... Presumably, if you find something you don't like or the insurer finds something that they don't like, then they've got a choice of either declining the insurance or they can ask the policyholder to take some action to reduce that risk or potential loss. Exactly right. And I think what's been exciting for us is now being in a bit more of a, a growth position and that we're serving a larger number of carriers at a larger volume. We've gotten to see the behavior that comes out of these interactions. And You'd be amazed at how grateful I think the policyholders often are when a carrier informs them that maybe there's a breaker in their electrical box that has been recalled and poses a risk to them or their family. And so it's upping the level of partnership and the value that the insurance carrier can provide. And then further, those policyholders often will go and fix it. It's not kind of this gasp, oh, no, I've been caught. It's, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. And then they partner to resolve those issues. Yeah, it's such a great example of this sort of predict and prevent or risk mitigation, isn't it? That's, that's so much part of the future. Uh, and then you, you talk about AI or artificial intelligence. I mean, lots of companies talk about that. You know, often it's just a short term for meaning they they run some numbers for a complicated spreadsheet. <laughs> But, but you're, you really are using artificial intelligence. I mean, you don't have people there looking at the videos, you know, inspecting each property. The, the, the analytics are doing that and looking out for those. Well, to your point about the breaker switch, you're looking out for switches that might have been recorded. Is that right? Is that how the system works? You've automated. Presumably, you still have to have some human intervention at some point, but a lot of it's automated. Yeah, definitely. I would feel very comfortable saying that that our technology is is real. Uh, it's not a marketing gimmick, and we're really proud of it. It's very hard to actually operationalize machine learning and artificial intelligence at scale in a performative way. And so I'm really proud of the team and their ability to innovate. It is truly inventing along the way. We do have human intervention there, and we we probably always will. I think we don't shy away from that at all. Early on, I, I use a pretty common example just because it makes a lot of sense and it's kind of funny, but we had an example where our computer vision platform saw a patio table in someone's backyard. And this patio table was round and circular and had a glass surface that was reflecting the blue sky. Sure enough, that gets labeled as a hot tub, but it's not a hot tub. So we'll go and we'll correct those things 
as the computer vision models are improving and they get the luxury of learning from people. Um, and so we do have, we call it a human loop system that is continuously improving, adding new things and correcting when mistakes are made. And we'll keep that likely forever. It reminds me actually, I saw a presentation <laughs> by Google and, and they were looking at something similar, but the big challenge they had was trying to distinguish between muffins, blueberry muffins with currants in them and chihuahuas. <laughs> and that's Google. We take a very pragmatic approach here, and there's no need for us to, to oversell or, or do anything like that. The system works. It works very scalably, uh, but the challenges are real. I have a lot of admiration for other people in the market um, that are out using computer vision to do it scalably, to do it for a large number of detections. I think somewhere we're somewhere in the, the 200-plus range now in terms of features and risks that we're able to identify. And I'll tell you, I mean, every single one of those requires very considerable focus. There's always nuance to it. And to get to enterprise-grade performance is, is a real task. Uh, but I'm really proud that we've gotten there. In that field of computer vision, do you or are you able to buy in sort of libraries or you know, someone else has figured out how to solve that problem about the hot tub? Or do you have to build it from scratch? When I mean, you touched on this a bit earlier on, presumably there are some things out there now that you, you can buy versus build or license versus build. Yeah, I really wish you could buy a lot more than you can. <laughs> I think that would have made things considerably easier for us. What we found is that you have to develop the system to actually work with imperfect data. And that's one of the things that early on, even as we were entering the market and talking to, uh, in particular, some of the larger carriers, they were wrestling with the decision, do we build this ourselves with our own data science teams or do we partner with someone like a flyreel? And they went through a cycle where they experimented with building things themselves and then came around about eight to 12 months later with the conclusion that they should partner. And the reason is that for kind of coming back to the prior point, to do something well using machine learning takes an incredible amount of focus. And the data science teams, which are incredible, uh, that work at these insurance carriers, should not be grappling with patio table versus hot tub. They have more important things that they can be doing for their teams. And in addition, I mean, the, just spending time deciphering, is this a computer monitor or a television screen? Those are important things to wrestle with and to solve. As you're operating at scale, they need to be dialed in. And what we've learned is that you can take images from some of those libraries or uh, online, and you can train on them, but those aren't the images that you're going to get from a smartphone with a policyholder walking around their home. The video bounces. They, you have different quality of camera that uh, sometimes it's pixelated. The lighting isn't always great. So if you're training on real estate photos on one of those websites where it's just beautiful, well-lit, um, what you're not seeing is a dark utility room with an electrical panel, and you're still expected to pick up on whether or not there's a Federal Pacific stab lock breaker there, right? So the the requirements and the quality of data to perform um, do not make kind of the public data sets a great foundation for training these systems. You really have to go and amass user-generated content to get uh, really that top performance. Yeah, it's a really interesting point because I've certainly spoken to quite a few 
large insurance organizations that have switched from investing in third parties that can provide data science, AI, but maybe in a more general way, instead of looking to rely on their own data scientists. But it, clearly there comes a point where it's rather like in my world of catastrophe modeling, you know, people at some point decided they shouldn't be building catastrophe models, they should license them. And, I, and it sounds like you're seeing a similar thing. And I guess he, I suspect partly your best customers are going to be the data scientists who realize where the value is from what you're offering versus building it themselves. And provided they don't feel they have to sort of prove they can do something that's beyond their capabilities, they can actually that's be quite strong right. clients. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then you, you sort of touched on this with your uh, patio table, but you, you're, you're inside, but you're also going around the prop, the outside of the property and, and what also the surrounding backyard and uh, there's a garden and vegetation and things. We do the full interior and exterior. And what's really neat also is that we've developed our system in a way that it's not uploading photos into a browser or filling out a form. It is you're interacting with an AI assistant that's having a conversation with you. And based on what it sees and what it doesn't see, it'll change that conversation. The purpose of that is so that it can follow up and get more information. And one of the examples I'll usually give is a pool. So if you walk around the exterior and you scan your backyard and it detects a pool, well, that should trigger some follow-up questions. If it hasn't seen a fence, it should ask to see the fence because you don't want someone accidentally walking into that pool. And further, with that fence, what you really want is a self-locking gate so that that's not left open and people aren't, again, going in there unsolicited. And so when the AI assistant detects things, it'll kind of fork off and ask questions specific to that risk to get a complete understanding so that the carrier is fully informed um, and can handle that the way they deem appropriate. So we do full interior and exterior, but it's a very adaptive experience that will pick up on things along the way and follow up and ask questions. Oh, so that's so interesting. So that whole liability side as well, it's not just the, the pure property damage. And then I believe you started off in residential, but what about commercial? Because as I'm sure you well know, that's just sort of still the big area that companies are struggling to get good information on. The overarching value of Flyreel is most prevalent in high-volume use cases. And this is just about being honest about the limitations of computer vision and machine learning, is they are an, an outstandingly cool deployment of statistics that rely on probabilistic modeling um, to come to reasonable conclusions um, and make decisions. And so if you're deploying artificial intelligence in a really nuanced commercial use case, for example, to look at a stadium uh, or a large building, it doesn't get the luxury of learning from a large quantity of those to transfer and take that knowledge into the next one to pick up on the things that matter. So that's an important principle that I like to kind of put out there before I get into where uh, we apply in commercial because it helps people understand why. And so where we focus now, uh, we are in commercial. We focus again on those high volume use cases and examples of that would be restaurants. Restaurants are a great one. We are able to pick up on sprinkler heads and ventilation, presence or absence of exit signs. Um, you have slip, trip and fall risk where there may or may not be a rubber mat in front of a soda machine. Those types of things are pretty common across most restaurants. Um, other examples would be 
uh, multifamily housing and habitation, uh, retail, um, barbershops. Those types of, of examples are good ones. And those are areas where uh, we're either entering or operating today. With the data that's coming off this, are you also able to start to understand things like construction type of buildings? So it actually then has a, another benefit in terms of working out what potential loss could be from earthquake or hurricane or, or flooding. Yes. I mean, we get a good glimpse into that, but you know, I, w- I would say compared to someone that's able to get behind the walls, uh, we don't, you know, we can't necessarily compete directly with that. However, compared to not having visibility into the property or having minimal visibility or just a couple photos from real estate sites or sources, uh, we provide a very considerable value advantage in comparison. So we automatically detect exterior building materials. And also on the interior, we can provide visibility into structure and more. And that's one of the main pain points that we have solved for a number of our customers, both in residential and commercial. Because also the finishing side is so important. So a lot of the costs for a building, if it gets damaged or destroyed, is the interior fitting. So what might look like a very sort of similar, two similar buildings can have very different costs if someone's got a very high-end kitchen or expensive fireplaces inside. So I guess you can start to, to pick that up as well. That's spot on. And, you know, you learn more about your product the more that it gets used. And when we first went to market, it was, you know, we're going to detect the items in the room. And then we quickly realized, well, that's important, but there's actually a, a larger scale problem, which is the carriers need to understand the structure. And um, if something happens, they need to be able to uh, accurately account for that and uh, get the policyholder on a path to resolution, getting that home back to its original condition. And that's where we learned that not only is it valuable that you're able to detect risks, hazards, and features, but it's also valuable just having this 10, 15, 20-minute walkthrough done by the policyholder that effectively creates a comprehensive baseline record of that home, both its interior and exterior. And that plays into considerable value upstream into claims. If and when something happens, you can pull up that original scan and look in the living room or look in the kitchen and see what was in there, what were the finishes, and uh, use that to then more quickly validate claims reduce the amount of touch points, um, but maybe even more importantly, get it back to its original condition and, and keep that policyholder happy and uh, letting them know that they're, they're valued and that you're going to do everything you can to get it right back to where it was. What strikes me as really interesting hearing about this is you've started off with one clear use case. That of itself is enough to provide the value or to get people to work with you. But along the way, you're starting to spin off more and more other areas. So there's a sort of exponential growth in value. But I think it's an interesting balance between, you know, often there's a, people have got too many things they're trying to do with the product and, and actually fail to really land on one because they're just charging around, responding to every need versus you land on one, succeed, build it out, you know, move incrementally through all the different pieces on there. So it sounds like you're quite a, a strong pipeline of potential opportunities you can build out once you've started acquiring that data. Definitely. There's there's no shortage of opportunity. And, you know, I, d- I just don't think that anyone is having more fun than we are. <laughs> I think we have a blast building this product and we have even more fun 
delivering it and working with our customers to to deploy it. And in those relationships with our customers uh, that we take very seriously and we we value considerably, you just continue to learn more and more about the value and the ability to apply this in different areas. And so that brings its own challenges, right? It brings a challenge of focus and you want everyone to be as happy as possible in the shortest period of time. But you do need to be responsible about that and kind of pick and choose where you're going to go. And and that's absolutely a struggle. But I think we've we've maintained a really tight focus on on underwriting to date. Um, we're excited about where we're we're going and and some of the technology we've innovated on in, in terms of claims and rolling that out. But um, that's uh, a great opportunity and a challenge at the same time. I guess we've all had a version of what you're doing in the last year of Zoom calls of seeing into people's rooms. I mean, you're doing that whole time appropriately <laughs> and uh, and making some money out of it. But it, just one thing I'm thinking of as I say that is the number of people that I've seen that have got electric guitars hanging up or propped up in their rooms. I wonder if there's an interesting flywheel algorithm based on people's musical instruments and other things they're showing in the background of their rooms, but probably, probably shouldn't go there. I think that's what's what's so exciting. And, and one of the things is for, you know, north of 100 years, You've had insurance carriers that are trying to do their absolute best at determining the right price and coverage to protect all of the things in and around homes at massive scale without actually seeing those homes, not because they don't want to, but they actually haven't been able to. They operate at such a massive scale that they haven't actually had the luxury of being able to get this data and use it to serve their customers at an even better and greater level. And what we see is that now that the data is coming in, exactly what you just said, oh my gosh, we had no idea that you had a home office with four monitors and two MacBook Pros. Electronics coverage is $3,500. Do you want to add 15 or $20 to your premium on an ongoing basis and, and bump that up. And the answer is, of course, I thought that was all covered from the get go. And those are really exciting opportunities. The stuff they care about most is protected, but it's also obviously impacting and improving the top and bottom lines of the carriers themselves. The interesting thing there is you're also making it easier for people when they don't actually have to go and think too hard about what they need. Just, their insurer is just adding that in or offering them the chance to add it in, which is also anything that makes life simpler is uh, is going to be a, a good thing for people. One of the things we've we've gotten to learn about along the way is, you know, I think early on when InsureTech was coming to the market, almost everyone was focused on speed. And we really dove in on on that concept. Is it that the customers want speed? And ultimately, the answer is no. Of course, they want an efficient experience that's not going to take a ton of time and demand too much of them. But ultimately, the customers want to know that their stuff is protected mm-hmm. and that they're paying the right price. And if the purchase price of that for them is 15 to 20 minutes of their time walking around the house, scanning their home to make sure all the things that they scan are, are covered, um, they're totally willing to make that trade-off. And in fact, they're pretty happy to do so, knowing that the outcome is a better outcome. So that experience component is is really important. And I think that's that the, the market as a whole will see a little bit of a correction there, that 
the future of insurance isn't isn't one click i'm insured right it's no i want an efficient experience but i sure want to make sure that my insurance product is the right one and it's packaged in an experience that is consumer grade and acceptable to me and particularly adding that whole point about what you said earlier of where you're finding things that are potential risks that people didn't know about i mean that absolutely is yeah where people want help and are prepared to spend some time with it solve some problem down the line so yeah absolutely speed in the sense of people don't want to be doing sort of administrative fiddly stuff but actually they'll take a bit longer if they know that it's going to give them some really good results and so i think all that links into and no surprise you've been adding clients uh when we last spoke you had 25 clients in the u.s and and one in Canada that may have grown since then. But I was also really pleased to see that you've actually been able to get the support from your clients to issue press release. I, mean, I find it so sad when insurance companies on one hand say they're out there supporting innovation and new companies, and then you talk to people and they're not allowed to go and talk about the success they've had in working with the company because they won't issue a press release. This seems really inconsistent. So, so right. clearly you've got some uh, some happy and supportive clients there. But can you talk about any of the ones you're working with or any examples that you can share publicly? The publicly disclosed ones, um, you can see press releases where we're very grateful uh, for our relationships with folks like State Auto. And most re- recently, we were excited to announce our relationship with Kingstone and the results that their executives and leadership has attained by kind of pushing the bounds of, of innovation and and uh, same for folks like QBE and, and Mercury. Uh, these are just really exciting groups that we're grateful to just be working in support of. And more importantly, to, to almost be on the sidelines and see the results that they have been able to develop and um, gain from their own deployments of this technology. I mean, every single one of these groups puts their spin on this, right? So this AI assistant, it has its own voice. And the messaging, the way it communicates the workflows that it takes the policyholder through, they're entirely configured by the carrier themselves. And so the groups that I listed and and others have incorporated the tone and the voice and the values of their businesses into this customer experience. And they've been able to attain really great results. And of course, you know, that warms my heart and gets me really excited that, that the people that have adopted this have generated better outcomes for uh, their employers and their colleagues. That's so interesting. So the, the character of the company comes across in the way or the way they choose to have as a voice built into your application and presumably the kind of language they use. Uh, I imagine USAA, you know, former servicemen have, might have a slightly different approach to how they ask people to go and take video than, than other companies, just given the background of their policyholders. But uh, that's, that's fantastic. It's uh, yeah, just another angle you win, you win on. Um, and then just in terms of speed of how you sell, you're talking about speed or just even the you know, approach you take. What, what advice can you offer to people that are, you know, like you coming into the industry, still relatively new, got to start from scratch. I see in most cases selling into insurers. I mean, how do you get their attention? Who, who are you selling into? This has been an area that has been a major focus of mine and our teams for a couple of years now. And I think the way that you sell changes over time, right? When you're a startup with hopes and dreams, but not a whole lot more than that, <laughs> you have to sell differently than when you're a startup with 
25 carrier customers and a nice team and financial backing. And, and we've been both of those. So when we first entered the market and we didn't have a ton behind us, I think it's very much a relational sale and selling the vision and then doing your absolute best to de-risk it for the prospective customer uh, as possible. I mean, one of our first customers, it's a, again, a public one is was state auto and state auto has this incredible vision and a, a just deep focus on deploying the best of today's technology, but, but in the name of delivering the greatest experience to their customers. And that's so ingrained in their culture that it's led them to be pretty open-minded in terms of experimenting and testing and deploying new technology to try to satisfy and further that vision as much as they can. So that the reason why I share that is that's the persona of your ideal early adopter customer for a startup that has a great idea, tons of conviction in the talent, but maybe not a whole lot more than that. Those are the types of people that you're trying to have conversations with and you look them in the eye and you say, I believe to my core that there's something here and I have no proof, none, but I'll do everything I can to deliver this to you. And if I don't, you owe me nothing. And so de-risking it that way is I think the way we, we really got some of our first chances to go and enter this market. I'm just going to hit pause here for a moment. Now, there's so much great advice here from Cole. If you're building a company or one of those people on a team building a company with a new product, then you are going to be looking for those early adopter companies. These are the ones that aren't afraid to take on something that's not perfectly formed. If you're not familiar with the technology adoption cycle, then it's worth having a look. Just Google technology adoption cycle or better still, go and get Jeffrey Moore's book, Crossing the Chasm. It's going to be really helpful. And if you're in an insurer looking at innovation, then it also helps to know where you and your company sit on that technology adoption cycle. Are you an early adopter or maybe your organization wants to play it safe and be in the late majority? Either way, you're going to be thinking very differently about the way technology companies and innovation is going to be part of your organization. Enough of that now. Back to Cole. And then you get into, you know, okay, you've proven it, but there's still the rollout and you have longer sales cycles and there's technical ways to help bridge that gap. One of the things we did was we saw that there's potentially a delay related to integration where IT teams are very busy, busy people. And so if we have to have an integration into our system before the customer can go into production, that's a risk. So we created our own standalone secure dashboard where they could access data while we were waiting on those integrations to happen. So that's a kind of tactical, technical way. And then there's also, you know, in terms of fundraising strategy, you should probably raise a little bit more than you need to last and get through those long 12, 18-month sales cycles because sometimes you don't actually want to rush those. You're excited to get to revenue, but the most important thing in the end is delivering success. And you want the luxury of being able to dive into these organizations and understand what are their drivers, where are they hurting, and how do you actually deliver that success? Sometimes that takes 12 months. And so being able to ride that out without there being tremendous risk to your business because 
you know, your customers want to know you're going to be around for a while. There are financial strategies that you should deploy and raising a bit more capital, I think, in this market is often a pretty wise move. The challenge for you, I guess, is unlike some companies where it can be rolled out as a POC and people can test it and you know, kick the tires or something. For yours, they sort of got to buy into it before they start asking their customers to go out and start taking photographs or video of their operations, then they. So you really have to get them convinced it's the right thing and also all the investment outside of whatever they're doing with you just to actually go to to change that, train their own people up and uh, and educate their policyholders. Yeah, you described that so much better than you and I did. I think that um, that is where the work is. That's where most of the work is, is you can get the systems to talk to each other, but how do you actually embed into the workflow, the underwriting workflow, the customer experience and more? And there's a lot of trust to be earned where we're a B2B to C business model. Um, we sell directly to the carriers, but their customers um, are really our end user in, in many of the cases. And so earning their trust, dialing in their messaging, getting it to look uh, so that it's in alignment with their brand and closely monitoring the behavior and the experience of those customers to know, do they understand what we're asking them to do? Is the experience too long? And that has to be done continuously. I mean, that's done on an ongoing basis. We provide analytics packages. We have a whole team that studies that for every single carrier to optimize email open rates and completion rates and more. And uh, that is definitely where a lot of the work is and a lot of the time uh, investment gets allocated. You mentioned in passing about investments and Guidewire, I noticed, is is one of your investors. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about the motivation they had for getting involved and what you do with them? Yeah, I mean, Guidewire is, is such an incredible organization going back to its its founding and the early vision that they had for the industry. Um, and now you know, they've obviously established themselves as a market leader. And I think it's really great uh, and important the role that they're playing deploying capital into up and coming startups to not just give them the means, the financial means to operate, but providing a vote of confidence from a voice that matters so much. And Guidewire has been innovating internally, but also now through investment, they're innovating on the edge through partnership and more. Um, which is great. It's a catalyst for the ecosystem as a whole, and we're a beneficiary of that. Uh, early on, I think they have great connections to a number of venture capital firms, and we were connected through one of those. Um, but they have their vision for where the industry is going, and they're, you know, more often than not, one of the underlying platforms that's powering that. And so aligning with groups that are driving the future, um, but in a way that it also benefits Guidewire creates a real win-win. And I think that's what they saw. It's what we saw and ultimately has made the foundation for a great partnership. One of the things that also strikes me, just talking about all the additional benefits that come with what you're doing at some point, and maybe you've already reached that you, you start to understand what the, the characteristics of a portfolio are for risk. So once you've assessed a certain number of homes, you know, the percentage of the homes across a portfolio maybe varies by state that are going to have, you know, risky circuit breakers or boilers are going to catch fire. I mean, are you starting to be able to capture that data and use that and provide it back to insurance companies to help them assess the risk of their portfolio and think about you know, other, other ways of reducing that risk at scale? Yes, definitely. I mean, as you play out 
where we're headed and, and, and also where we are. I mean, now we're being used at a, a pretty healthy scale. And the result is, you know, our computer vision, I like to use a comparison that we're, we're able to index properties similar to the way Google indexes websites, right? We have an index of the attributes and the risks and the features and more. And the more and more you acquire that data in a structured way, you can start to pull uh, that data and perform some pretty valuable analytics about risk selection and what part of the book is performing better than the other and what are the attributes behind those that are potentially driving that. And so our customers that have adopted us at the greatest scales are now able to pull that data and advance their models, advance their understanding of risk, and they're reaping the rewards of that, which is exciting. That was our hypothesis, and it's nice to see that start to prove out uh, with the customers that have deployed this at, at the largest scale. And then looking forward, what happens next? You've given a few hints. Uh, I think claims is something you're looking at. Also interested to know if you're looking outside of the U.S. as well, because presumably the methodology is consistent, but of course all the equipment and, and other hazards are going to be different if that's proprietary equipment. I think that the, the inevitable future of property insurance is that when you want it, you're going to take out your phone, walk around the house or your business with that camera on, and the policy will be dynamically priced, constructed, and you'll say, yep, I'll take that policy. Right then and there, 15, 20 minutes, great insurance, adequate coverage, and a full scan of the property in its original condition is done. And then when something bad and unfortunate happens, the same experience will happen. You're going to take that phone right out of your pocket. You're going to scan the damage. I just think how cool would it be if we achieved that vision? It changes the entire experience. It improves the economics. The carriers will be doing better. The customers will be happier. And it's just the experience that everyone deserves. So that's what we're after in the, in the long run. And it's happening not just in property, but in, in life. We had somebody at one of our events that had something similar. It was, took an image of your face and could tell what people's health conditions were based on their eyes. And, mm-hmm. and even, you know, amusingly gave a, an opinion on what your biological age was or, or rather oh, wow. what your, the image. Your, <laughs> I'd be afraid of that one. <laughs> well, in my case, fortunately, because my wife was there, she came out younger than her biological age and I came out <laughs> older. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm afraid coming out of the latest fundraising round, I, I may uh, score pretty poorly on that. <laughs> uh, well, just before we do finally close off, Cole, a couple of things. So uh, just I hate to ask this in one question because we could do a whole podcast around it, but tips for building a business. And I think, you know, I looked on LinkedIn, you got 39 people, uh, but something like that. Any sort of top of mind or major priorities for you about how to successfully scale a business so quickly and in a fast growing area? If you're inventing technology, you have to have your own convictions about the future and chasing that. But validating along the way to make sure you're not chasing just some crazy dream is really important. But putting the customer first is just so important. And I hope and believe that all of our customers feel that every single day when they work with Flyreel. So that's kind of the external advice that I would give. And then internally, I think this very similar, having your vision but not just for the technology, but for the culture and the people that you want in there. Uh, diversity, diversity of thought, cultural diversity, 
All of that has to be core to a successful company. And it takes a lot of very deliberate work. Um, I'm not a master at that at all. But I think now that we've gone from six people to 12 to 20 to now high 30s and, and more to come, you know, you don't get the luxury of being with everyone in a single room and they don't get to know how you think and what you value and how you approach business. And so codifying that in written form, putting extra effort into pouring into to uh, the values and communicating those clearly is super important to make sure that 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 scales. And again, that correlates directly to the prior point of you know putting that customer first. One of the most important parts of that is giving them really happy employees at your company that care and understand their business and have a vested interest in their success because you can't fake that. So those two ultimately join in the end. But I think um, that that's the advice that I would give. And I mean, Cole, your classic example of someone who's, who's clearly been successful, who retains high energy and enthusiasm, huge amount of work here on the background, but certainly you know, the, of the colleagues you work with, members of the team, we've already started to know, you know, completely sort of replicate or are consistent with your values there, you know, a really great bunch of people. And yeah, and thank you for your support for Instead London. You know, it's, it's so good to be working with an organization like yourselves. I've just really appreciated uh, the the opportunity to hop on here with you and, and all the work that you've put in. And so thank you so much for having me. Now, it's been tremendous. And looks like certainly from what we're hearing from the UK side, you know, we could be through this before too long. Welcome, welcoming people back into London, maybe even the summer. So hopefully get you, you know, when you're over, which I'm sure will be at some point, get you to one of our live events and oh, yeah. uh, see see what happens in a, a railway <laughs> art nightclub on a Monday evening after something. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a blast. I'd love it. And we can come and ski with you in Colorado. Okay. There you go. Okay. All right. Thanks, Cole. Bye for now. Thank you so much. Well, if Cole's enthusiasm doesn't make him another one of those guests that leaves you feeling a little bit more upbeat about the potential for technology to improve insurance and lead to happier customers, then I really don't think there's hope for any of us. If you've got a great story you want to share and want to collaborate with us at Instead London as one of our corporate members, then please do get in touch. Matthew Grant at LinkedIn or contact any of us. Hello at instec.london.